I want to begin this morning just by uh, saying that this is a rough time of the year for me. Every year around this time, this is a rough time of the year for me. I don't want you to get too worried because it's not that serious. But every year around this time, me, along with millions of Americans and people all over the world, go through something very difficult. The months of July, August, September, and October are the four months of misery, also known as the NBA offseason. Because the season ended in June, and right before the season ended, not only did you get to see games, but you got a new amazing game every single night, and then just like that, it was over. That's a hard time of the year for me, because I love basketball. And so basketball fans like me are in a season right now where we're trying to figure out, what am I supposed to do in the evening? What am I supposed to talk to my basketball friends about? We kept talking about the game the other night every single day. What are we supposed to talk about now? Now we're left to talk about the draft or summer leagues or what's going to happen next season or last season. And I like to talk about what happened last season, so I'm going to do that right now. Because we're supposed to bear each other's burdens. Amen. So, of course, the Golden State Warriors won the NBA Finals, and I was excited about that. I was pulling for them. I like Steph Curry. I saw some fist bumps in the back. And one of the main stories, of course, was that the Warriors were the best team all season long. But the other main story was LeBron James, who is amazing. If you don't know anything about basketball, LeBron James is the best basketball player in the world. And he had an amazing NBA Finals where he set records. He did things nobody else had ever done before, and he blew our minds. But it wasn't enough because his team was a little ragtag. You know, they were struggling a little bit. They had a bunch of people get injured, and they didn't really have enough left in the tank. And so as much as I was pulling for the Warriors, I'm also a LeBron fan because he's amazing. And so when this happened, of course, all the LeBron haters, and there are many LeBron haters, came out. And they were ready to go at him. They were saying, see, Jordan wouldn't let that happen. Jordan would have scored every point. Jordan would have played all five positions at the same time. Like, he's only one man. Stop it. And the main critique was, of course, hey, you got to have a good team. You can't do it all on your own. The things you did were amazing, but it's not enough. You got to have a really good team. And unlike some LeBron fans, like Pastor Richard, I can slander him because he's not here. I can think clearly about LeBron, and I can agree with some critiques. They're right. You cannot win it all by yourself. You need other people on your team. You need other people on your squad because it's a team sport and there are team goals, collective team goals. So his individual stats didn't mean that much if they weren't able to get that win. And so going into next season, they know what they have to do. They have to practice together. They got to watch film together. They got to go through game plan together. They have to do everything together. Their whole journey has to happen together if they're going to be an actually good team who can win a championship. Well, in the same way that that team's journey has to be all together, I want us to think about Christianity in a similar way. All right? Because we're often aware of how when we trust Jesus, our individual identities change. We understood that in Ephesians 2, that when uh, when we trust in Jesus, we go from being dead in sin to being born again. We're now alive in Jesus. And we think, man, I am a brand new creature. Something changed about my identity. But the thing that we often sleep on is it's not just an individual identity change. There's a corporate identity change. 
In the same way that if a parent adopts a child, it's not just that they now have a new father, they now also have new brothers and sisters. And if they neglect that corporate part of their identity change, they won't really understand the identity at all. When we trusted in Jesus, something collective happened. So that the Cavaliers are to ever win a championship, which I think they will, they're going to have to play as a team, not as a bunch of random players, not as a bunch of individual members. And if we, as God's people, as the church, want to honor Christ in the world, we cannot just be a bunch of random members or a bunch of random Christians who sometimes see one another. We have to actually be a body, the body of Christ. Christianity is a team sport. And until we think about it that way, we will not be able to reach the final goal. So we said, hey, the Cavs know what they got to do. They got to practice together. They got a game plan together. They got to do everything together. Well, if Christianity is a team sport and we have to go through this journey together, what is it that we have to do together? And we're going to continue this morning in our series in Ephesians. So if you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And while you turn there, I'll give you a little bit of background. We've been going through Ephesians. We've gone chapters 1, 2, and 3. And as John mentioned last week, what's happening right now is where there's a shift in the book, where Paul has been giving us big, grand doctrine about who God is, about what God has done for us in Christ, about how we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We've been raised to life. He's united us big, grand things. And this is where, like Paul does in many of his books, he shifts, where it goes from mainly theology, what we should believe, Truths we should know to the way that we should respond to those truths. Okay? So that Paul has laid those foundations, and now he's going to tell us what we should do in light of that. And one thing you'll notice is this is going to hit on some things we've already talked about, such as unity. And we, as the pastors, chose this book on purpose because we thought there were some important things that we wanted to talk about throughout this series. So listen to what Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So we're going to stop there for a second. So when Paul makes this shift, he's going to say, here's what needs to happen in light of all that stuff I just told you. I encourage you. I implore you. I exhort you to live in a certain way in light of that. So we know Paul didn't give us all that doctrine so we would feel smart and get proud. Paul gave us all that doctrine so we would feel grateful and get to work. And that's what all doctrine should lead to. Gratitude towards God and a response of worship. And so he urges us, and as he does, he reminds us of his situation. He says, hey, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ. He's already told us once before, hey, I'm a prisoner of Christ. He wants to remind us, even as I urge you to live in a way worthy of your calling, I want to remind you that I'm trying to lead by example. I am enslaved for the Lord Jesus. He's saying, I. I want to call you to live a life worthy of the calling you received, or even more literally, to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. So sometimes some of us wonder and we think, what is my calling? What has God called me to do? And we'll go outside and be like, God, if you've called me to take this job, I just want to see a frog jump right there. Just when I turn around, Lord. One, two, three. I'm going to give you another chance, Lord. And... And these are the kinds of callings that we have come to expect and that we want to see from the Lord. 
Or maybe some of us think, hey, it's only the pastors and the professional ministers who receive these great callings from God. But Paul is going to say something very different, that every single person who's trusted in Jesus has a particular calling. And not a calling that doesn't have anything to do with our Christianity. It's a calling that demands something of the way that we live. That's why he says, I want you to live a life worthy of the calling that you received. And the calling he's talking about is the one that we've all responded to, that gospel call, the good news of Jesus, all that stuff he's been talking about so far. I could remind you of all the amazing things he's talked about so far, the forgiveness of our trespasses, the fact that we were predestined before we did anything, that Jesus was going to save us, that we've been saved by grace, not of works. I could go on and on and on, that we have an actual hope of eternal life. Paul is saying, hey, that calling, that miraculous calling, I want to call you to live a life worthy of that calling. It demands something of us. And then he's going to tell us what it demands of us. And that's what we're going to spend our time thinking about. So since Christianity is what I'm calling a team sport, he's going to tell us how we should respond together. I want you to look at verse two. This is what Paul says. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's God's word. We're going to look at three things uh, in verses 1 to 16 that we're called to do together in light of that calling. Number one, stay together. We've been called to stay together. And when we hear something like stay together, the most common thing that we think of is marriage. Right. That's a relationship that we always want to stay together, but it doesn't always happen that way. Why is the marriages don't always stay together? Well, there's sin and there's conflict and there's pain because marriage is hard. It takes work. Or maybe you can think of some of your favorite bands or groups that haven't stayed together. Some of y'all think about the Fugees even now. Groups that haven't stayed together. I mean, that if you ever read reports of bands who play together like 20, 30 years, they don't like each other anymore. And it's hard for them to stay together and for the same reasons. There's sin and there's conflict and there's pain and there's difficulties. It takes actual real work. And unity in God's church is the same way. It's not like because we come into this building, it's all skipping in fields and high fives. It's still hard. So Paul is, Paul is exhorting us as to how we should accomplish that. So when we look at those character traits in verse 2 humbleness and gentleness and patience, we think, yeah, man, I want to be humble and I want to be patient. I want to be gentle. And we want those things to show up in our individual lives. But I want to remind you that Paul is not calling us to strive for some character traits that we're going to have in isolation. He's not calling you to just to be humble and gentle and patient at home while you're watching Netflix. He's talking to us as a community. He's calling us to be humble and gentle and patient towards one another. So these are not just random character traits. This is actually a roadmap for what our interaction with one another should look like. So if you want to know bullet points, hey, what is my interaction supposed to look like with God's people? Then here are some character traits, humbleness and gentleness and patience. And we know it's for all of us because at the end he, he modifies it all by saying bearing with one another in love. So if you think about some of these, humility. 
both at the time that Paul is teaching this and in our time, humility isn't really one of those things that's valued that much. Right. Our, our culture wants us to assert ourselves and assert our needs and assert everything about us that we think is great. Make sure everybody knows that we think we're great. Paul calls us to humility. And we think about something like gentleness or meekness. That's something we would see as weak. The opposite of being harsh and putting your needs above everybody else. Gentleness is the kind of kindness that puts others' needs before your own. Then when we think about patience, patience may be something that's valued by some people, but patience is not something that most of us feel we do very well. Patience is being able to put up with somebody's stuff a lot, basically. And yet these are the things that, that Paul has, has called us to because God values this thing. Now, one question I have is why does Paul have to exhort us to this? Why does Paul have to tell us to be that way? Because we're not naturally humble, gentle, and patient. We're naturally proud and harsh and impatient. And it's those very things, our pride and our harshness and our impatience, that produce more pride and harshness and impatience because we act that way towards one another and then we want to respond that way. I mean, tell the truth, when somebody comes at you a little sideways, you're like, I know you didn't just. (laughs) And it produces a cycle of more impatience and more harshness and more Pride. So Paul is saying, hey, I want you to respond in this way. He says, bearing with one another in love. For some of us, this concept of patience and bearing with one another is absolutely foreign sometimes. Because we feel so justified that when somebody does anything that seems kind of wrong to us, that I am justified to cut them off immediately. Like, if somebody shows up late for lunch one time, you're like, I'm done with him. (laughs) Or somebody does something that is actually a sin against you. We feel very justified in saying, I am done. I wipe my hands clean of that person. And instead of bearing with them in love, we stand over them in judgment. And I want to say that is absolutely no way for us to maintain this unity, to stay together as a church. It's going to actually take work, and we're going to have to bear with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love means that we're committed to someone's good, not just worried about our feelings and not just worried about winning. I mean, that's what comes up in our minds when we, you know, somebody talks to us crazy. We think they're not going to talk to me like that. They're not going to win. But bearing with one another in love means, yes, you've wronged me. But more important than me winning or feeling like I've won or my own pride is your good and our good as brothers and sisters in Jesus. So if we are going to stay together, it'll take interacting with one another with humility and patience and with gentleness. Humility, patience, and gentleness, if these are things that are foreign to you, one place that we can look, that all of us can see, to see pictures of this, is mothers. Motherhood. I mean, when you think about a very natural picture of someone who's humble and patient and generous and who unendingly puts the needs of someone else before their own and puts up with somebody's stuff a lot, I mean, mothers are an amazing example of that, right? I mean, I, I praise God for moms, and it's almost like a little picture, a little illustration of this, is that we can look to moms, of course not perfectly, but we can look to moms to help us to learn these things. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you may say, those sound like nice things. I haven't seen those in churches. 
And I, I can't really argue with you. I don't know what your church experiences are. Some of us have had really hard church experiences. And I want to say that we as Cornerstone Church are not saying that, hey, we've mastered these things. We're saying God has called us to these things, and we're going to fight to live this way with one another. So look, if you're, if you're not a Christian and you're here, we want you to keep coming. And we want you to see the way that the Lord will work among us and help us to exemplify these things more and more. And the way that we say, okay, I messed up, I repent, help me, Jesus. And see the Lord produce that with us. Some of you may say, hey, Tripp, why did you say that we need to stay together and not come together? And I said that because I wanted to emphasize keeping the unity, not creating the unity, because that's what the text does. Look at verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He doesn't say create it. He says maintain it. You know, my wife and I got married six years ago. We don't need to create a marriage. We don't need to become one. We are one. What we need to do is maintain that oneness. And the same goes for the church. There is a big difference between building something from scratch and maintaining it. And here's an example. I just moved over here to the West End in January. And so in order to do that, I had to, I had to buy a house so we could live there. Um, and along with that joy came all the other little joys of being a homeowner. My favorite of those little joys is money being taken from your pocket at all times. <laughs> like, oh, they installed the wrong heating and cooling unit. And I didn't know before I bought it. That's nice. And oh, they cleaned up that just enough so there's no way I could possibly tell. And then I moved here and it's mine. That's nice. Little joys of homeowner. And so while it is very annoying to have to do things in order to maintain the home, it is manageable. It's something that I can do and it's something that I signed up for. Now, if somebody would have said, hey, you need to move to the West End and you need to just build your house from scratch, then we would have problems. I can barely build a bookshelf from Ikea, much less an entire home. There's a very big difference between maintaining and building from scratch. And yet God has not called us to create unity from scratch. If he had, we'd have no idea where to start because it's hard for messed up people to unify around anything. Sin is a divider. Sin never unites anybody. It only divides. So sin does, and we all have it in our lives. Not only that, we come from different backgrounds, so we got different biases and different preferences and all kinds of stuff that's going to make us beef with one another. And so if we got to do that, we're not going to do very well. The good news, though, is that God hasn't called us to build this unity from scratch. He's called us to maintain it. So again, Christianity is a, is a team sport. God put the team together, and he's called us to fight to stay together. That means it's going to be easy. It just means that we have a unity that's already been given us. So then to, to fight to maintain that unity is to not allow sin to divide us again. We've been brought together by the cross of Jesus. Remember that in, in Ephesians 2 saying, hey, Jew and Gentile, Jesus saves all of them. There's no dividing wall. We're all one. But while God would love us to be unified and together, sin would love to divide us over and over and over again. Sin would have us hold things against each other and fight. Sin would have us fight over every little disagreement. Sin would have us gossip and tear one another down. But God would have us fight to remain one. If you do not fight the sin in your life, you will not be able to fight for unity in God's church. So I want to ask you, what kinds of efforts are you making towards maintaining unity? He says, make every effort to be eager to do this, be zealous. And many of us just have no zeal in this area. We don't really care about unity in God's church. And I think the reason is we don't understand how deep this unity is that God has already given us. So I want to look at that. Look at verse four. 
Paul says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Do you see how many times he uses the word one? One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. I mean, it seems like he's making a point that we have some things in common, right? So think about those, one body. That means the body of Jesus. We're all members of the actual same body. One spirit, the same Holy Spirit of God indwells every single one of us. Called to the same hope. That means we're trusting in the same stuff. We get to have eternal life. Same Lord, that's Jesus. One faith, that's the truth about Jesus. One baptism. All of, them are, all of us are baptized in the same spirit and have had that kind of baptism in water and trusting Jesus. We have the same God and Father. We have a very deep bond with one another, and it's a beautiful, deep bond and one that we should fight for. Families have a natural unity because they share the same blood, but this unity that we share is far deeper than that. I mean, we can say for sure that we're going to spend eternity in the same place praising the same Lord forever. That's a deep, deep unity. I mean, what deeper unity could you possibly have? The unity we're fighting for is not a shallow kind of unity. I, I was sitting and talking to a friend the other day. It was three of us. And he said, hey, you like comedy, right? Have you watched this show? And we were talking about some podcasts. And my friend was like, that, y'all are really into podcasts. He kind of turned his nose up like, y'all are weird nerds. And here's the cool thing. We do not have to build our unity around random little preferences, like the music we like or the podcasts we like. That would be a really dumb thing to build a community around. Right? TV shows end. Right? Stuff stops being good. But the goodness is the unity that God has given us and that he's called us to fight is centered around things that are far more substantial than that and meaningful than that. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit. It's called us to unite around very good things. And it's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Again, I want to ask one more time what you're doing to fight for that kind of unity. You know, and do you think you're doing anything to work against it? Because our unforgiveness for other Christians works against this unity. When we're lazy and apathetic and we don't take any initiative to build with other people, that works against this unity. When we refuse to think about how to relate to other people and understand their issues, to actually be able to bear their burdens, we're fighting against this unity. This actually takes hard work. It's like any other relationship. You know, sometimes I'll talk to people and they'll say, hey, it's just hard for me to build relations with people in the church. I don't have these good friendships like I have with these other people. It's hard to feel unified. And one thing I like to remind them is you built this tight relationship with them because you spent lots of time with them. You discovered things you had in common. You actually put effort into that relationship. And if we're unwilling to put any effort into building relationships and building unity within the church, then we should ask God to give us a heart for the things that he has a heart for. So I'm not trying to guilt you into spending more time with me. I'm just trying to encourage you to think about what God has a heart for. All right, so if Christianity is a team sport and we got to be on the same page to win the prize, then we have to stay together. But what else is the text calling us to do? Let's look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. 
What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Number one, we got to stay together. Number two, we got to serve together. Many people, when they think of worthwhile acts of service, the the immediate things that come to mind are things like maybe serving at a soup kitchen or maybe going on mission trips. And you're right to think those things. Those are great works of service that we can engage in. But we would be foolish if we thought that the only time that that Christians should serve is when we're serving outsiders and we're never actually supposed to serve one another and build each other up. This would be like a doctor who's come up with a cure for cancer but ignores the tumor in his own body. I mean, it's good for us to serve others, but God has called us to serve together and to serve one another as well. So Paul, right here in verse 7, he takes a little bit of a departure. He just spent a lot of time convincing us we're one, we're one, we're one, we're one. And then he starts to uh, draw attention to our differences. Somebody say, hey, doesn't that threaten our unity? But it's only a very weak unity that can't survive any kind of differences. We, We have a better unity than that. So the differences in ethnicity or age or how much money we make or, as Paul points to, the spiritual gifts we have, we can still be unified in the midst of those differences. So when when Paul says, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned, that he's talking about spiritual gifts. That Jesus has given us graces as spiritual gifts, and he's given different kinds of gifts to different people. Sounds like 1 Corinthians 12. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit distributes them. So that means some of us may have gifts to preach or teach. Others may have gifts of encouragement. Others may have gifts of hospitality. Whatever kind of gifts you have, they all come from the same God, which further unifies us. So even though the same God gives it to us and he gives it to us for the same purpose, we can still use that as a reason to, you know, fight with each other, to have rivalry in our hearts and begin to be envious. Like, man, that gift looks Really cool. I wish I had that one. And it seems silly because Jesus gives all of them and he gives them to us to work together with them, but we'll still do it. I mean, I can think of times when there has been envy in my heart for things that were really silly and foolish towards people who were, you know, going after the same mission. One place this can happen real easy is being with other rappers on tour. So I can think of times when I was on tour with other rappers, dudes that I loved and respected and told people about, and then we get on tour together, and I'm watching they set, and I'm like, huh. He's going to ride the crowd like that, huh? Okay. I got you, bro. I got something for you. Or, oh, man, I see what you did with your set. Or some way not rejoicing in my heart at the way that they've succeeded because there's envy in my heart because I want that. And the reason that we do that is because we've elevated ourselves above the mission. So when we look at the gifts that Jesus gave to other people and we're envious instead of rejoicing for the gifts that Jesus gave, it's because we've elevated ourselves above what Jesus wants to do. More important to us is if we have the gifts to give us some shine instead of what Jesus is doing with the gifts. And what should give us some comfort and instruct us is the fact that Jesus is the one that gives the gifts. Like he, it's up to him who gives them, right? We can trust Jesus. It's not your two-year-old giving out gifts. It's Jesus. He doesn't make mistakes. He's all wise. And so that we're not only guilty of just sinful envy when we envy other people's gifts and we're mad because we didn't get them, we're also guilty of unbelief because we don't trust God to distribute gifts in the best way. 
So we should plead with God. Hey, help me to see things the way that you do. Help me to believe you. I mean, you're, you're God. Help me to trust you. So we shouldn't be insecure and assume our gifts aren't good because Jesus gave them. Some, some of the spiritual gifts, even though we see in spiritual gift lists in, in uh, the New Testament, don't seem all that spiritual. So you shouldn't be like, man, I wish I had a preaching a teaching gift. I wish I had the gift of prophecy. Well, Scripture also talks about very uh, normal gifts like hospitality and encouragement. And all of those gifts are necessary for the building up of the body. You may say, hey, how do I know what my spiritual gift is? Some of us have taken these spiritual gift inventories before. Pass them out, you fill them out, and at the end you're supposed to know exactly what your spiritual gift is. And maybe that does help some of us, but most of the time all it tells us is what we think about ourselves. What we think we're really good at. There's ways we really want to serve. And we don't always, not always the best judges of our heart. I think the best way to kind of think about what your spiritual gifts are and how you can serve the body with them is to just serve when there are opportunities. Right? People don't figure out, to go back to the basketball analogy, people don't figure out what they're good at just by watching other people and say, I bet I'd be good at that. But they get in the game and they serve and their strengths and their weaknesses are shown and the ways that God seems to bless people when they serve. So I'd encourage you, when there are opportunities to serve, that's what God has called you to serve right now. And as you do that, the Lord will show you where he's gifted you to serve his body in unique ways. Paul says this in verse 8, speaking of the gifts, he says, This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended, higher than all the heavens, in order to fill the whole universe. That sounds a little crazy, a lot of ascension and descension, words we don't really use that much. But Paul is quoting from Psalm 68, and in Psalm 68, it's a passage that praises God for his deliverance of his people and then his presence with his people and the way that God has worked among them. And what Paul sees there is that Jesus is a fulfillment of this passage. Now, let me tell you what's a little unclear about what Paul is doing here, because if you read the passage he's quoting, it doesn't say... That, uh, Jesus, uh, that God gave gifts, it says he received gifts. So it's a little confusing. Like, okay, so what is Paul doing here with, with that passage? We know he's not changing the passage. We know the passage isn't wrong. And to be honest, it's not super clear what he's doing as far as I can tell. As much as I studied it, as much as I look at what scholars say about it, it's kind of hard to figure out exactly what he's doing. But here's what we do know. That there is, there are examples in Scripture where that, where that same word refers to both receiving gifts and to giving them. So one example is with the Levites in that very passage where, uh, where the psalmist could be saying that he, re, he took these captives, which are the Levites, he received them and he gave them as gifts to his people. And so what seems like the most likely thing is that Jesus, that he's saying that Jesus came and they're captives, captives to sin, that Jesus took and he received them as gifts and he gave them back as gifts to his body in order to build them up. What's very clear in the passage is that Paul wants us to know that Jesus gave gifts to his church. And what a gracious Lord we have that he would give gifts to us. We've seen all throughout the book of Ephesians that God is a God who's rich in grace and mercy. And here he continues to show it. It's almost like Jesus is an actual Santa Claus who travels around the world dropping spiritual gifts at the doorsteps of all his people. That's very gracious of him. He doesn't have to do that. He's just good in that way. 
And then he cares so much about us being built up as a church that he gives us the gifts in order to do it. So as Paul begins to talk about the gifts, he shifts from talking about all the gifts that he gives to individuals, and he starts to talk about people that he gave to the church as gifts. Right? So that's, that's what it says. It says uh, that Paul gave apostles and prophets and pastor teachers. He's given those gifts to the church in order to build the church up. And so I think he's talking about the very unique gifts of apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastors and teachers in the early church. The kind of guys that gave us these scriptures, the kind of guys that planted the first churches, the kind of guys that took the gospel all over the place. And Paul is saying Jesus gave those gifts in order to benefit Christians like us. It's the reason we have God's word. If God didn't give apostles and prophets, we would never know what God is like. We would never know how to be saved. We would never know what it means to be unified. But God was so good that he gave us those gifts. And if God hadn't given the church, the entire church, those gifts as a foundation to build upon, then it wouldn't really matter what spiritual gifts we have because we would have no idea how to even use them. But God in his grace gave those gifts. And he's also given individual spiritual gifts to each one of us. And he says he gave it to us for a reason, for works of service. For works of service. One, one, one thing... Uh, that it's good for us to be reminded of, as it says in the text, that these leaders equipped the saints for the work of the ministry, is that all throughout the history of God's working with his people, the leaders, God's leaders, didn't do all the work of ministry. They didn't do all the service. The main thing they did was equip the saints so the saints could do it. So similarly, in this church, Cornerstone, the pastors of this church, me and John and Richard, we do not in any way, shape, or form plan to do all the ministry, or to do all the works of service, not only... Uh, would it hurt our marriages, but we wouldn't have time to do anything. And we couldn't even do it all well because we don't have every spiritual gift. We would do a poor job with just three guys. Instead, what God has called us to do as leaders is to proclaim God's word and to lead and to follow Jesus and to equip the entire church for all of us to do those things, those works of service, the work of the ministry. So please do not think that you have to wait for permission from somebody who works for the church in order to be a Christian and help somebody know Jesus more. You don't have to wait. You don't have to wait for us to gather other Christians and study God's word. That's a good thing to do. You don't have to wait for us to serve somebody who's in need. You don't have to wait for us to open up God's word when somebody's discouraged and encourage them with the character of God. It's what God has already called us to do. You don't have to wait for us to commission you to do that. God already has. That work is our work to do. And what we've been called to do as leaders is to proclaim God's word that we would be equipped to do those things. One of my favorite things to hear about is just Christians in their everyday lives helping one another to follow Jesus more. It's a good thing. So the goal of this service, as we see right here in the text, is that we would be built up, which brings us to our last point. We should stay together. We should serve together. And finally, we should grow together. We should grow together. The point of it all is that we would be built up. Now, again, because we think so individually about our, our following Jesus, we often think of growth as an individual thing. We don't think of it as something that happens with a whole body. It's something that happens together. But here Paul tells us to serve one another, not only so we can grow as individuals, but so we can mature together. But right off the bat, I want to make clear, I'm not trying to say we don't have to grow as individuals. 
please don't say, hey, I mean, I was at church, tripped on me. I don't even have to grow no more. I did not say that. We're recording this message. We have evidence. It's not what I said. I mean, it is very important for us to have individual spiritual growth. That's how a body comes together. Right. And of course, one part of the body can even grow stronger than others. But that stronger part of the body harms itself if it amputates itself from the rest of the body. Right. I don't care how strong an arm is with the strongest bicep and tricep and forearms. And I don't even know if those are the right things because I don't worry about myself. But the strongest arm cut off from a body cannot live or be useful whatsoever. There's no blood flow. There's no brain to send anything. The arm by itself can't do anything. So not only when you amputate yourself from the rest of the body, no matter how strong you think you are, not only do you harm others, but you also harm yourself because we need each other. I need you. You need me. We all need each other. So, yes, we must grow as individuals, but we also must grow collectively as a body. We don't need any super strong amputated body parts running around. And if you think you should amputate yourself from the rest of the body, then you might not be as strong or mature as you think. Because you need the body in order to continue to grow. 4.13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Right there is the goal of us being built up. That unity in the faith, the faith meaning the truths about Jesus that have been passed down, right? And in the knowledge of the Son of God, that we will be unified in our knowledge of who Jesus is and what Jesus is like and what Jesus has done. We're trying to build each other up in those things until we reach that maturity, right? Basically saying no man is left behind. And then until we grab a hold of what Jesus has purchased for us at the cross, we won't be able to reach that maturity. He's saying until we look like him, that's our goal. That's what we're working towards. Verse 14. So when we do that, when we build each other up and we're mature, he says, then we will no longer be infants. Tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. He's saying, look, when we build each other up and we're mature, we're not going to be babies anymore. Sometimes I'll reflect and I'll think, man, the life of a baby seems very nice. No one requires anything of you except just to sit there and look cute. And if you are cute, you didn't do nothing about that. You just are. And you sit there and you wait for someone to bring your food to you and feed you. You wait for someone to change your diaper. And when you don't have what you want, you just scream out. And it annoys people so much that they have to help you right there. The life of a basin is pretty easy. But other times it seems like it could be kind of traumatic because you literally don't know anything. You literally do not know anything. So that when I put you in the crib and I leave, you think maybe they've disappeared forever. They've left me. They're never coming back. Even though the last 60 days I always came back. You just don't know anything, right? So anything can really toss you about because you don't understand it. And he's saying, look, as immature Christians, we're kind of like babies. We're fragile. We can be tossed back and forth by waves, whether that's trials or anything. We don't really have anything firm to stand on because we're babies. He also says blown about by every wind of teaching. And again, think about kids. You've got to be careful what you say to kids because they will believe anything because they don't know anything. My wife was trying to explain the sun to my kid. I mean, first he was a little scared of the sun. He thought it was going to get him. And then it was nighttime. He said, hey, mommy, where's the sun? She was like, um, it went to sleep. 
Since then, my son thinks that the son is a person that has to get rest from time to time because he doesn't know anything. So you have to be careful. I could literally convince him of anything. He doesn't have any prior knowledge or experience to compare it to. And in the same way, brand new believers, infant believers, immature believers don't really understand or know anything. And until we do, we're going to be believing any and everything that anybody says. I want you to know there is such thing as very dangerous false teaching. There is such thing as lies that people tell about God. There is such thing as people claiming to speak on behalf of God, but really uh, uh, preaching demonic things, as Scripture says. And if we're not mature, we'll never know what's what. And Paul is saying, together, we have to mature in such a way that we're not so fragile and tossed about by any and everything we say. There's some of us, while we're mature, I mean, I remember things I thought when I was an immature Christian that I'm like, where did I get that from? Oh, that random man on TV that I saw for three minutes because I just didn't know any better. So Paul says instead of that, verse 15, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. He's saying the antidote to immaturity is speaking the truth in love. We don't believe lies when we know the truth. So, of course, experience grows us and service grows us. But the main fuel that grows us is the truth of God spoken in love. And that's because God has chosen to work mainly through his truth. You know, you can speak the truth in unloving ways, right? You can say true stuff in very sinful ways. So how do you know if you're speaking the truth in love? Real quick, three things. Truth spoken in love is gracious, it's timely, and it's caring. It's gracious. It's not self-righteous. It's not assuming you're better than anybody else. It's understanding they need God's grace. It's timely. It's not always the right time to say everything, okay? Sometimes it's unloving if you say something true at the exact wrong time. And it's caring, right? It's meant to actually benefit the person, not just for you to say true stuff. Some of us know true stuff, and we just like to say true stuff. But we need to speak the truth in love. That's how we mature, And mature with one another, with Jesus as our head, meaning Jesus is the leader. Jesus gives the orders, and we're growing up to maturity in him, but we all have to do our part. We all have our gifts and roles. And when we don't engage, we're hurting more than just ourselves. We're hurting the rest of the squad. We're hurting the rest of the team. We're hurting the rest of the body. I want to encourage you to think about your involvement in God's church and the way that that affects other people. You understand God gives gifts to his church and you're robbing the church of the gifts that he's given by not using them. So we need to pray that God would push us in to serve and to love one another. The beauty of the fact that we have diverse gifts, it doesn't hurt our unity, it helps it because... All of us can't do the same things. It shows us that we're very dependent on one another. So we need to stay together. We need to serve together. And we need to grow together. And one last thing I want to point out is that Paul says, when he talks about all the ones there in verse 4, he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. The beauty of the unity that we have is we all hope in the same thing. Sometimes we get kind of thrown off and we hope in money for a second or hope in jobs or hope in relationships. But we all have hope in the same thing. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, 
I want to offer this hope to you. That you can know this God right now. I mean, you can have the hope of eternal life, of being forgiven of all the things that you've done that disobey God, of your past being wiped clean, of no shame and no guilt. And you may say, why is it that I have to have these things? Why do, I, why do we all have to have the same hope and the same Lord and the same baptism? And the reason is because there's only one man who actually paid for sin. There's only one who can forgive us of our sins. There's only one who actually paid the sin debt. There's only one who's actually coming back to reign over all things. Scripture says there's only one name under heaven by which all men can be saved, and that one man is Jesus Christ. And if you would trust in Jesus, you would turn from your sins and trust in Jesus that he paid for sin and rose from the grave, you can be saved right now, and this hope can be yours now. For those of us who already share this hope, I want to encourage you, invest. It's a team sport. Let's strive together. Let's pray. Father, we come in Jesus' name and we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you've spoken to us and we thank you that you've made us one and we thank you that you've given us instructions for how we can honor you with one another. Father, we pray that you would use your word in our church. God, that we would love each other, that we would disciple each other, that we would serve each other, and that we would grow with one another to the glory of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.